Well, good morning, everybody. Let's get started. Our, our opening prayer. Lord, your hands have made and fashioned us. Give us understanding that we may learn your commandments. Those who, who fear you, who, whose faith is in you, shall see us and, and rejoice because we have hoped in your word the same way that they have and we are part of this brothers and sisters of, of Christ as we walk through this world in faith. We know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and then in faithfulness, sometimes you, you afflict us in order to, to teach us righteousness, in order to guide us in your paths. But in your affliction, we pray that your steadfast love would comfort us according to your promise to your servant. Let your peace, let your mercy come to us that we may live. For your law is our delight. Your teaching gives us joy and pleasure. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged us with falsehood. And as for us, no matter what happens in this world, we will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to us that we might know your testimonies and, and walk together in faith and in hope. May our hearts be blameless in your statutes that we may not be put to shame. For Jesus' sake, amen. So a, a bit of prolegomena um, as we get started here, picking up where we left off before Easter, the, the issue of idolatry. Um, some of what I said was challenging and maybe provoking, uh, but uh, I think that this is a really important baseline topic that, that needs attention. So, first of all, when we talk about idolatry, we talk about having other gods. This is nothing that's new. Humanity has done this. Christians have done this forever. So we have been baptized into Christ and we believe in the one true God. But often uh, there is a, uh, um, a connection that takes us back uh, to other hopes and other, um, hmm, other places that, that we find our, our fear and our hope. So to understand what idolatry is, the first thing we need to understand is what is a God? And... From Luther's large catechism, I, this is about the best description, best definition I've ever seen. I mean, I'm not biased, uh, but uh, <laughs> that should be maybe a little bit funny, but okay. Thank you. All right. <laughs> a God means that from which we are to expect all good and which we are to take refuge in all distress. So in other words, where do you look for good things in your life? And where do you turn when you have trouble? That's a God. And this is the root sin. This, this is foundational to everything else. All sin flows from disobedience to God and not following his will and his ways. It's, it comes from fearing or trusting in something else. And the, the explanation to the Ten Commandments in the small catechism uh, emphasize this. This is a kind of a key teaching for us because all of the Ten Commandments begin with a callback to the first commandment. 
So we explained the first commandment, you know, the first commandment is you shall have no other gods. And then we ask, what does this mean? And we respond, we should fear, love, and trust in God above everything. And when you get into the rest of the commandments, all the rest of them begin with, you know, what does this mean? We should fear and love God so that. And what we're actually doing is we're pinning each and every one of the following commandments back to the first commandment. So why should we honor God's name? Because we should fear and trust in him above all things. Why should we not steal from our neighbor? Because we fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Why should we lead sexually pure and decent lives? Because we fear, love, and trust in God above all things. It, you know, and just constantly tying back to, to who is our God and, and how do we trust in him and how do we live this life of faith. Now, when I say that we are all idolaters, please do not think that I have this suspicion that you have this, this secret statue set up in a closet in your house that you will bow down to and, you know, what, what I'm actually, that's actually called coarse idolatry. Um, but often what we see in subtle ways in our lives, through the fears, the insecurities, um, through our priorities, and uh, where we find our sense of well-being, is that we have different idols that supplant God. A common one is what Jesus refers to as mammon. You know, we can talk about our, our, our finances. And I, I want to be a little bit careful here because a lot of times, you know, we think, you know, coming from a, a, a standing of relative affluence um, that, uh, you know, we're like, oh, we have enough and so I'm okay. But a lot of times, you know, even in need, there, that mammon can become a... Uh, uh, an idol in our lives. And I will confess that that has been something that has been an idol in my life. Um, my family grew up relatively poor and, you know, had a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear that was related to lack. Well, that anxiety and fear is pointing toward uh, a, a lack of trust that God provides the things that I need in my life. And that's just a realistic part of, of, of who I am, anyhow, that sometimes I don't trust that God is going to take care of everything that I need. Um, I think that politics, yes? Maybe letting you have affluence is his way of Can you say that again? Uh, having that the things he provides for you is his way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, there's nothing wrong with having things. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, I, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that when our, our hope and our confidence is rooted in whether or not we have those things, that's when mammon, you know, earthly goods and earthly pleasure can become an idol. And I think that sometimes in my life, you know, particularly some time ago when we lacked way more than, uh, you know, 
you know, when I was a kid, when we ate meat, it was generally something that we hunted or fished, you know, or we raised it ourselves. You know, I mean, we weren't like dirt poor or anything like that, but you know, we weren't, you know, flush. And, and I think that there was a part of us, part of me anyhow, that kind of feared that lack. Even though we never, never went hungry. God provided for us through the whole time. Um, so uh, I think politics is one of these things in our society that is often an idol in our hearts. Um, you've heard me talk about this before. It really, when you look at how did you feel about the last election? How did you feel about the one before that? If your life is okay or not okay based on who is in the White House, it is worth taking a moment to examine what's going on in our hearts. And I'm not saying that elections don't have consequences, and I'm not saying that there aren't problems that can flow from you know, who has power in government. But if your overall sense of my life is okay because of, then that's something that maybe you need to take a look at. And that's another one that I've struggled with over the years. Um, I think medicine can be uh, an idol in our lives. Technology, you know, everything's going to be okay because we're going to overcome, um, we're going to overcome the pandemic with medicine. Everything's going to be okay because we're going to figure out how to technologically uh, upload our brains into the cloud and therefore I'm going to be able to live forever. Um, and there are people who think along these lines, you know, my life is okay because you know, th these things. And I want you to notice that all of these things are good gifts from God. You know, financial security, good government, medicine, technology, the, the whole thing. These are all good gifts from God. But the problem comes in when, when these become more authoritative in our lives than God and his word when they reconfigure our morality, when they redefine our creatureliness. And this often happens through two kind of different uh, heresies that have plagued the church pretty much forever. Materialism and Gnosticism. When we talk about materialism, what I mean by that is that the only thing that there is is this world. There is nothing spiritual. You know, so therefore, the only thing that you have to hope in is the things of this world. When I say Gnosticism, Gnosticism is largely a, a, a rejection of the things that are material. And therefore, the goal is to become spirit. And as human beings created in the image of God, we are both material and spiritual and we can't separate those they are essential to who we are and so something becomes a god in our lives it becomes a source of hope for us and when it points us back to ourselves as our savior in a form of, of uh, self-justification 
And this is all rooted in the original sin which corrupts our nature. You know, it, it, even though we are forgiven, even though we are redeemed in Christ and we have the Holy Spirit in us, we are going to battle this nature that is within us that is corrupt. You know, when we talk about it's, it's good, it is in the image of God, and yet it has been corrupted by sin. And both of those statements are true at the same time. You know, and, and so when we, when we recognize this about ourselves, we're going to recognize that you know, it, as God's redemption is at work in my life, I, I am perfectly right with God and living in, in faith and hope and confidence, and He is my one true God. And yet, through this corruption, our hearts are going to be drawn toward other things. And that self-justification is an important part of that. Um, I have talked about this book in other contexts before. Uh, it's called The Unholy Trinity by Michael Lockwood. Um, it's a really interesting look at idolatry uh, in connection to the persons of the Trinity. Um, I put a link in the, uh, the, the homework section um, to a, a couple of uh, um, resources regarding this. And uh, I, I would just, if, if this is something that, that interests you and you would like to think a little bit more deeply about, I, I would commend this to you uh, to, to take a closer look at. So, all right, to the text, unless there's any questions or anything else before I need to move into... Uh, Romans 3. Alright. So we've ended on Romans 3, verse 4. Romans 3, 5 through 8 says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being considered a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So leading up to this, um, Paul has been uh, kind of building this, uh, uh, this idea that, that um, God is true even when we are a liar. And what is the advantage of the Jew? Well, the, the, they have the word. And, and uh, um, you know, they have the, the testimony. They have the Christ. You know, those promises. All things that, that we ourselves have now. You know, and, and so he, he's moving into this idea of, you know, how are we justified before God? Is it based on our actions? Or is it based on the gift that God gives? And... If our actions show God's goodness and mercy because of, you know, him needing to forgive us, well, it, it's kind of like the, uh, the saying I've heard from time to time, well, if God's, good, God's forgiveness is good, I should probably sin more so that I get more forgiveness. So what, it, what is at the heart of this argument that, that he's making here? Basically, he's saying that unrighteousness stands as an opposite to righteousness. So it helps us to see what righteousness actually is. 
So our unrighteous behavior shows the righteousness of God's verdict upon humanity. You know, so God has said, you know, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And look, oh, wow, he's right because of our actions. And our unrighteousness displays the righteousness of God as he deals with us in judgment. As he looks at it, he says, yep, that, that is condemned. And it becomes the place where his righteousness shows forth through his judgment. So, because it displays his righteousness and it shows God is actually truly just, shouldn't we conclude that since our unrighteousness is to God's advantage, because how would anybody know what his judgment or his righteousness is if we weren't unrighteous? It is unjust and a form of unrighteousness for God to deal with us in his wrath because his response to our righteousness brings him glory, honor, and his righteousness is revealed. It's kind of circular, kind of convoluted, but that's where our, our wickedness of, of our, our fallen sinful nature will, will take us. And so this is in some ways like, you know, the God made me this way argument. You know, I sin in whatever particular way you sin, because this is, this is the way God made me. So what are you going to do about that? You know, you have to accept me the way that I am, because, well, God made me this way. And it doesn't matter if that behavior is sinful. It, it all connects back to him anyhow. And it tries to make God the cause of sin. And we, we utterly re reject that. The scriptures re reject that idea. Um, in, in fact, once again, when, when he says, um, you know, should... Uh, but if our unrighteousness serves to show that the righteousness of God, uh, what shall we say, that God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? By no means. And again, that, that's that um, no way. It cannot happen. God is not unrighteous to inflict his wrath on sinners. It, he's completely justified in his condemnation. Because if he, if he was using our unrighteousness to display his righteousness, if that was the whole purpose about that, how, how could God then judge the world? If he caused that unrighteousness to display his justice, how could he judge the world? In other words, if he is the cause of unrighteousness, he can no longer as it says earlier, prevail because our judgment of him is true and his, he is unjust in his judgment. And so there, there's this whole idea that someday we are going to stand before the judgment seat of God and we're all going to be accountable to him and, and to this, this standard that, that he has set that we have tried to make for, our, for ourselves uh, to fit within our lives. So when he talks about this, 
It made me think, you know, when, when is the judgment day? What's he talking about in terms of this judgment? As soon as you die. Okay, as soon as we die. All right. At the end. At the end. Okay. Could judgment day be... Constantly. What? Constantly. Constantly, okay. Could judgment day be Good Friday? Judgment Day be the day that Jesus died on the cross? Yeah, because we were guilty. We paid the price. So, guilty mean that there was a judgment? Yeah. So, I, you know, when we start talking about God's judgment, judgment day itself, when, when, when Jesus returns, you know, the last day, you know, there is a sense that there is a judgment that happens there. But that judgment it takes place in light of another judgment that happened, uh, God's condemnation of our sin that was taken by Jesus when he died on the cross. And, and so you look at that moment of the cross and we see our unrighteousness displayed in, in uh, a, a really strange way that the, the Holy One would die in our place. And if Jesus would take our unrighteousness upon himself in order to die for that sin and to be judged for uh, the sins that we commit and the sins that are in, in that corrupt nature, the argument that he's building is that we can no longer live in those things. We can no longer accept them as, you know, oh, hey, God just, you know, he made me this way. I sin like this, you know, and so it doesn't matter. And, and it just shows that God is, you know, God is right and he is just. Well, if you want God according to his just, justice, that's the cross. In terms of what Jesus experienced on the cross. If you want God in his mercy... That's also the cross, but it's our experience of the cross. That someone stands to intervene between God's wrath and us. That we might be righteous in Christ. And, and that's, that's where he's heading with all of this. And I feel like this is really convoluted. And you know why? Because it is. Yeah. It's the hardest part. And that's what the gift is. And maybe you'll never break that sin. Never will. 
but you'll always be a person. But also, it can drive you to be callous. It's yes. to remove yourself from the burden of having to accept that this is a sin. God made me this way, so be it. I don't need God. Yeah. And, and I, you know, in my life, I see more of that. Yeah. We either, in response to our sin, we tend to, re- to respond in, in one of two broad categories. One is confession, you know, that we need forgiveness, and the other is hardening of our hearts. You know, and there's a continuum between there, and you know, people are complicated, and so one moment they feel guilty, and the next they feel defiant, and, and, and all of that. But, um, yeah, when it comes to our standing before God, we have this really deep desire to have it be about us. That our standing before God connects back to something about, you know, our goodness, uh, something that we accomplish in our lives, you know, so that, that even in kind of this perverse way, you know, we uh, contribute to the display of God's righteousness by our sin. You know, so that it always, always comes back to, you know, how am, I, how am I contributing? How am I helping with this? And the message that, I, that Paul is, is, is leading us toward is, one, it's not about you. It's about God and his mercy and his grace. And two, you know, you are uh, powerless in this. And we don't like that. It's really uncomfortable to, to think that, that it really comes from the outside. This whole salvation comes from, our righteousness comes from completely outside of ourselves in terms of our standing before God. You know, and, and as if that's not confusing enough, there is another sense of righteousness in terms of how do we relate with each other that is influenced by that. And there's another uh, sense of righteousness in terms of what does the world perceive as righteousness. And it all, there's interplay between all of it. But what Paul is primarily concerned about and what we as Christians need to have as our kind of rock bottom foundation as we deal with these other things is how do we first of all become righteous with God? Then how does that influence how we understand righteousness in our relationship with one another? And how does that speak to what is the righteousness that we would like to see displayed in the world, which gets into the, the politics type of stuff? Yeah. Not to not to get this even farther back. Oh, I'm so I'm so far gone. It's you know. <laughs> how does all of this uh, connect to rewards? You know, I mean, the, the scripture talks about heavenly rewards, and that's completely separate. I think that when we stand before God, that we're going to be surprised at what the rewards are and who gets them. You know, um, you know so we think about like the, the saints who have gone before. And, you know, you know what, what is the reward that somebody like St. Paul or Peter or you know, Mary Magdalene um, you know, or, or Jesus' mom, Mary, you know, what, what are the, the honors that are going to be bestowed on, on them? And um, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of times what we're going to find is that those honors 
are rooted in how God had mercy on them in their lives. And I think that that will be our experience as well, that, you know, as we recognize God's mercy in us, that, you know, that the hymn, Chief of Sinners Though I Be, you know, uh, that idea that, you know, wow, God's mercy is absolutely amazing. And so we tend to think about the honors uh, being related to things that were accomplished in our lives. And I, I, I think it, it's going to be a little bit more that the honors are related to what did God do in our lives and how did he display his mercy through us. And sometimes that mercy to us and, and through us is going to look in our eyes like things that were accomplished through us. But at that point, it's going to be tied directly back to, you know, God's grace and his mercy, what he did for us, in us, and through us. Is that... It depends upon what you mean by that. You know, I mean, you know, so am I, am I going to get jewels in my crown because I, you know, did this and I, I served on these boards and I sacrificed these things and maybe not. But will you have jewels in your crown because God showed mercy to me and then through me, you know, these people, you know, learn Jesus' love? Oh. Probably not. Yeah, because what, go back to the Lenten series, what did the saints around the throne do with their crowns? They put them at Jesus' feet. They put them at the throne. No, it's all, all to you. I think when we get to heaven, Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to give the impression that, you know, like we lose our identity when we're in Jesus' presence. And I don't think that's what you're saying, uh, but I think that we could get there from there. Um, but I, yeah, I think that we're going, when, when people think about heaven, I, we often think about the people who went ahead of us. You know, and I look forward to seeing my dad again. I look forward to meeting my grandpa. But at the end of the day, I suspect that seeing Jesus face to face is probably going to be better than either of those encounters. And in fact, seeing Jesus face to face is going to give those encounters much greater meaning. And that we will find our joy in that context of being with him. You know, that everything else has meaning, that everything else matters just simply because he's there. And we won't have to look for the context or the meaning or anything else. We'll just be there and we can go on from there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it will be just there. obvious and it will be who we are. Yeah, Don. Yes, you talk about forgiveness too. I, um, not only I think we don't like it, I don't think we can really understand total forgiveness either. We're not capable of it. You know, as much as we say, you know, I totally forgive you, there's always that, you know, back in mind, we're, we're giving you. Yeah. I don't think we can understand that total forgiveness. 
Yeah, I think, I think that sometimes we get glimmers of it. And I think we trust it and believe that it's there. But, yeah, how do, how do you put your mind completely around that? You know, how can... Well, I'll, I'll just... The example that's coming to my mind right now is, uh, is Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, Jeffrey Dahmer, his story is that when he was in prison, he came to faith. This is a person who did absolutely heinous, horrible, terrible things. Things that, you know, we would look at and say, how could such a person be saved? And yet, if we really believe the gospel, that Christ died for all sins, someday we are going to be in an eternal fellowship with Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, and that is hard, you know, because we're so focused on kind of this performative idea of faith. Sin is sin. Yeah. You don't get punished because you have so many or certain kinds. Sin is sin and you are forgiven for your sin. Yeah, and it's not just, you know, certain kinds and what you did. It is... This is who we are, apart from Christ. You know, that our nature is corrupted by this sin in such a way that it totally permeates it. And apart from Christ's forgiveness for that original sin that is, clings to us and is part of, part of who we are in this life, you know, we are by nature sinful and unclean. That's what we confess over and over. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. It's, it's, it's deeper than that. It's like, it's like a tattoo. You know, it, it just, it's, it's indelible. You can't wash it off. And it doesn't come off completely until the resurrection. And it's only when we are dealing with God that we find ourselves completely in the state where we say, I am righteous, not because of me, but because of Jesus. I saw a hand up there. You kind of tend to feel like there's a book up in heaven, there's an accountant marking down, doing really good, oh, that, 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 that. When you get there, you've got one more good day Right. Yeah, and that's how a lot of people view this, is you know, where's the scale? Yeah. You know, and the scale is actually not my good and my bad, it's just my bad and Jesus good. Yeah. I kind of think that, you know, we, we like to try to, as people, we like to try to sort of. And, but um, what Jesus says that faith as small as a mustard seed will move mountains. Uh, and so, you know, it's not even our faith, really. It's, you know, I think we may be very surprised that we had faith as small as the Muslims. Yeah, I think so too. And I sometimes become concerned, you know, as we look out and we, we try to separate who's in and who's out, right? Okay, I see this evidence here and I see this evidence here. Well, they're clearly out. Maybe not. Because just that, that tiniest amount of trust that Christ died for my sins that that can move mountains? You know, and we're like, oh, wow, that's pretty impressive, moving the mountain. How impressive is raising the dead? How impressive is forgiveness? How impressive is it that as sinners we can stand in God's presence? 
I think we become impressed by the wrong things. Well, look, the mountain moved. Yay! That person was forgiven for all their sins. Well, I'm not sure they deserved it. No, that's, that's the big miracle. <laughs> visiting um, a nursing home one time and uh, I probably told this story before because I tell all the same stories, sorry. Um, but um, there, there's a lady there and she's very upset and you know, the Lutheran pastor is there and you know, hey, you're a pastor, will you come talk to? Yeah. You know, and uh, she's like, I don't understand why God is doing this to me. I'm like, well, what's God doing to you? Well, I want to die. I want to go home to be with Jesus. And, you know, I, I, I deserve to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, I've done all of these things across my life. And, and she did some cool things. She helped to build a seminary in uh, Africa, you know, and supported missionaries across her life. And in that moment, anyhow, in her, in her life, she felt like, you know, her relationship with God was really based on what she had done. And uh, I looked at her and I said, oh, dear lady, you know, we can certainly pray that you will die, but you need to understand that your going to heaven has nothing to do with building a seminary, it has nothing to do with helping missionaries, it has everything to do with Jesus died for you. You know, and... That is a hard shift in our minds. You know, we want it to be about us somehow. We want it to be about us and our own. We try to figure it out. But it's when we're looking at other people, I think that's what we get from. That's where we sort of get out from where we're supposed to. That's yeah. not us, right? Right. That's, that's not our. Right. That's God's business. Absolutely. And even our place, in, in, you know, I mean, it's... it's that's God. And I think sometimes we would do well to just be like, wow, I cannot believe that I just received forgiveness. Or that's right, I can't believe that because I need the Holy Spirit to give me faith in order to take hold of this promise. And so that even my faith to take hold of that is a gift that God gives. This is amazing. And to just stand back and be in awe of the totality of, of, of the salvation that Jesus provides for us. Yeah, that, that's, that's the objective moment when I was saved is when Jesus died to pay for my sins and when he rose from the dead. There's also subjective experience of that, okay? And, uh, and I think that for, for my money, the, the convergence of the objective truth of my salvation and the subjective experience of that salvation 
happened on October 13, 1972, when my parents took me to a church and the pastor baptized me in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, because then it wasn't anything that I did, it was completely and totally what God did that I experienced, even though I don't even remember anything about that day. And I'm not even sure this is a picture of it, is there? Do you remember? Okay, I don't know. Chris keeps the pictures, and I can never remember. So. All right. So, um, he, he makes this comment, and it's kind of strange in here. He says, um, if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Um, it's kind of like, what, what is he talking about here? He's trying to make a, a more pointed statement uh, in that same line of argument. So if I lie, uh, and, and that shows you know, God's righteousness and his truth, because truth and lies um, you know, sit in opposition to each other, you know, so my lie shows God's truth, you know, a lie displays that there must be such a thing as truth, why am I being condemned? Um, and uh, you know, he's, just, he's just trying to make that more, more and more specific. And uh, Karl Barth wrote about this. Uh, Karl Barth was a, a great theologian in the 1930s, 40s. I'm not sure how, I'm not sure when he died, but he was an important Christian leader during World War II. Uh, he's from the Reformed tradition, uh, so don't always agree with everything that he has to say, but he was a pretty smart guy and had some good stuff. Um, and he says this about this passage. He says, so the truth, the revelation of God is exalted is triumphant by the means of human of the human lie from which it is distinguished so clearly by the justification of believers does my lie therefore serve that be, becoming exceedingly great that brilliant light of grace and consequently the glory of god why must i then be exposed to the judgment are they not right then are are they not consistent who draw the conclusion let us do evil that good may come of it. You know, so he, he's, just, he, he's following the logic. He's explaining the logic here. And Paul's response is, is that very simple. Yeah, no way. You know, he says their, their condemnation is just. And Barth says more about this. He says, why is Paul so brief? You know, he, he lays out this argument. Kind of, it's not super long, but... but it kind of feels longer than it needed to be. And then he just responds it with, uh, you know, their condemnation is just. And I, I like what he says. He says, you know, why is Paul's uh, response so brief? Because fools and consistent fools in particular can and should be answered briefly. And in that long question, everything is foolish. Everything is wrong. So um, Star Wars analogy. Uh, the uh, not the Force Awakens, the second one. None of them matter, but it's it's the one where Ray is on the island with Luke, and uh, Luke says, you know, oh, you know about the Force, and she goes on this long, you know, soliloquy about, you know, the Force is this living thing, and so on and so forth, and he's he's like, wow, everything you just said is wrong. And that's kind of what Paul is saying here. You know, he, he's laying out these arguments and he's like, yeah, it, it's just so wrong that it doesn't even deserve consideration. Um, 
the, uh, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why do I have that here? Let's see where I, did I lose myself? Of course I did. Uh, impenitence and self-justification and judging God. Those are some of the things that have been talked about through here. Um, these do not bring us forgiveness. They don't bring us reconciliation uh, or righteousness. And so what Paul is doing is he's pushing us into this relationship with God where we understand who we are in light of his righteousness, God's righteousness, and who we are in light of his mercy and his forgiveness. So in the Old Testament, a couple different times, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if we understand wisdom as living in a right relationship with God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of that. Recognizing that we are created, recognizing that we are uh, connected to him uh, in his mercy and in his grace, and recognizing that we are accountable to him, and then learning to live uh, under God's grace, providence, and sanctification are our key to knowing who we are in Christ. And uh, Psalm 111, I think, is a, a neat example of this kind of living. And I did not print this for you. I encourage you to, uh, to get out your Bibles and, uh, and to look at this uh, maybe with some more detail a little bit later. Uh, it is a 10-verse psalm, and it starts out with the word hallelujah. Or if you're reading a translation, it probably says praise the Lord, because that's what hallelujah means. Uh, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in him. So he's taking back and saying, look at what God has done. Look at what God has done. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Everything focuses back on who God is. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So it's just this constant refocusing back to who is God. Look at his justice. Look at his righteousness. Look at his mercy. Look at his compassion. Look at what he has done. And take the focus off of ourselves. Um, and, uh, well, let me see what I got on here next. I'm thinking that that might be where we need to kind of wrap up. Yeah, we're, you know what? No, I'm going to do this really quickly, and I'm going to leave you with some do-it-yourself. So the next section, Romans 3, 9 through 20. What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their tongues, under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. 
Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, what I want you to notice about this, and I encourage you to go back and to look these up for yourself. You see where I have numbers in parentheses behind each of those passages? Those are the citations below. And I want you to notice that almost all of them are psalms. I think it is important, well, first of all, the, the message here, you know, for all of the, 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 the views of humanity that, that people are basically good, that is not biblical. That is not the message of the scriptures. You know, we are fallen people who need forgiveness. And, and this is a description of humanity apart from Christ. And, and, and in relationship with God, because you're going to find nice pagans out there. But that's a civic righteousness, not a righteousness before God. So he wants us to know that everybody stands under the same condemnation because of the law. And one of the things that I think is important for us is to understand the right relationship between the Old and the New Testaments. Or maybe more simply said, just the Scriptures. None of what we're talking about with Jesus would make any sense apart from the old, what we call the Old Testament. It's all one account. Even though you have you know, these, these 66 books you know, written by a, a, a number of different authors, they're all inspired by the Holy Spirit and they all have one focus. And that's Jesus. And the story of Jesus cannot be told apart from the fall into sin and, and our brokenness and our, well, our deadness and trespasses and sins. And then the grace and the mercy that God reveals to us in Jesus. And so we need to understand that these, these are not separate, but they're integrated. And that Jesus is the common thread in all of it. In John 5, verse 39, um, Jesus says, you know, to the Pharisees, you know, you search the scriptures because in them you think you find righteousness. But they speak of me. In other words, he is the righteousness that they're supposed to find in there. And 13 different times in the Gospels, Jesus says that um, the, the, the things that, well, the Gospels say that the things that Jesus did, the things that happened, took place to fulfill the word to fulfill the scriptures so it is good and right for us to study the book of Romans but understand that the book of Romans is rooted in the Psalms it's rooted in Proverbs it's rooted in the prophets it's rooted in Moses in the first five books of, of what we call the Old Testament and it is good for us to know that this all fits together so let me wrap this with a, a, a quick story. Um, Pastor Donovan Wiley uh, is kind of a controversial character. Um, he grew up as an atheist. He was baptized at 26 years old. 
having come to faith and uh, spent some time working in the mission field. Um, he is a MMA, mixed martial arts, uh, jiu-jitsu instructor. He owns his own dojo as well as a pastor of the church. Um, he went to the ELCA seminary in Minnesota and um, started reading the Book of Concord and said, this doesn't work. And so he left. He's kind of a free thinker, He's a bit of a stinker. Um, and uh, he uh, um, became a, a Missouri Synod uh, pastor in, he's in, outside the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Um, he had a health crisis this past uh, um, Christmas time. Peggy, did you remember hearing this? Was it a kidney stone or something like that? Yeah. So here he is. He's an, he is an addict. You know, so he can't take the pain meds because of, for fear of, you know, addiction. And, uh, um, and he has to have surgery. And, and, you know, there's all these complications about it. And he has a, a, a tattoo of a Hebrew word. And the, he's getting ready to go in for surgery, and you know they're working with all the meds and, and everything, and the anesthesiologist notices this Hebrew word, and the, he is Jewish. And he says, um, you, know, you know, hey, what's that word? You know, and they start a conversation. Why is it on you? He says, well, this word from the Old Testament, and the conversation just died. because of the bifurcation of the scriptures. And he said, the moment the word came out of my mouth, I realized I had blown it. This word from the scripture speaks to what God says about you and me. And I want to encourage us to see this whole thing not as old and new, but as one account God's work of salvation, a work that begins with creation, goes into the fall, speaks of redemption, and ends in a new creation in the resurrection. It is, to use the word, I don't like to use this word, but I'm going to use it, it is one story. And the things that we believe are rooted in the scriptures, oh, and so I encourage you to look up those verses, and uh, if you have any questions about that, please bring them up next week. Otherwise, God's blessings. If you haven't gone to church yet, go to church.